All right, Luke chapter 2, all this week for the Bible study exercise has been Luke 2, 25 to 35. Even if you haven't been keeping up with the Bible study exercise, that's okay, because uh, where we're going to be, what we're going to be doing should, should be perfectly okay. Um, Luke 2, 25 to 35. All right, Luke chapter 2, tell me when you're there, say amen. All right, Luke 2, 25 to 35, what we're going to do is, we're really just going to focus on verse 1, that's all we've really worked on for the entire week is one verse, um, even though tomorrow's Thursday, so I really got a long ways to go in a couple of days, but uh, I don't know how I'm going to finish that up, so maybe, maybe we'll have to use a, a Sunday school to finish it up, I don't know, but... Um, We've only worked on a couple of things, so I, th- I think the best way to just do this is we're just going to, I'm just going to go through a little bit of verse, of verse 25, and kind of, kind of show, kind of explain what we have covered, and then we're, what we're going to focus on tonight is really two things. One should be pretty simple and straightforward. I didn't even think about even giving this as an assignment to everyone who's participating in the Bible study exercise. Um, the, the thing we're going to be actually, the main focus tonight is going to be something I gave everyone as an assignment because I think it's very important. And I'll explain its significance by kind of laying out a principle here in a few minutes. But let's start in verse uh, 25, Luke 2, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. All right, so this week we focused on the fact that Simeon is referred to as a just and devout man. Now, the word just in most translations is translated as righteous. So, a just or righteous man. So, what we spent all, a good portion of the week working on was the idea, okay, if this man is considered just or righteous, how do we understand it? The Bible study curriculum had a very interesting approach. They said before Christ, people were just or righteous based off them striving to keep God's law. However, after Christ, we can be declared just or righteous because of our faith in Christ. That's extremely problematic because the idea of being justified by faith does not begin after Jesus. It begins where? In Genesis, right? So that was, I, I found that interesting that the Bible study curriculum even hinted at that. That was, that was bizarre to me. So the way I approached it is in Simeon's position before God, he was just and righteous because of his faith. And the reason I say that when you say someone is just or righteous, we all know that that doesn't mean anyone is perfect, right? Right, so if, if a person is not perfect, yet you call them just and righteous, then how much unrighteousness can be in a person, and yet they be called just and righteous? How much unrighteousness can be in a person? Because whenever you say, well, that person's righteous, and then people say, well, it's just the general direction. So as long as the general direction is righteous, but the general, now you're measuring the general direction based off what? An external behavior. Even if the external behavior appears to be righteous, does that mean that they're that the same is true internally? Like that just becomes a subjective relativistic mess. So I will argue that he was declared just 
and righteous because of faith, and in his practice, he was called devout. And the devout idea is grabbing or taking hold of something. So he had his faith, he grabbed hold of what he placed his faith in, which is God, and he held on to that. Now that's not as uh, uh, subjective, that's a more objective thing. Here's someone who grabs onto their faith, even though they may not be perfect in practice. David was considered a man after God's own heart, but clearly... Mistake. So, in other words, I think that's the best way to look at it, and there was lots of discussion this week about it, but... Just so that you know, that's what we focused on. That's what we focused on. So the thing that I completely ignored and didn't even think about is found in the first part of the verse. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now, the assignment I gave everyone was to do basically a basic background check on Simeon and do some a basic, you know, a background study. Not like a background check, like, you know, checking with the police or the FBI, but the idea of a basic background study to know a little bit about him. So we're not going to do that tonight, but here's what I want us to do. Let's just look to see if there is any significance in his name. Remember, sometimes biblical names are very interesting or significant. Sometimes they are not. So you feel free to look up anywhere you have available to you. The Bible dictionary will be of no assistance to you. All right. Uh, now, the Bible dictionary uh, Sarah has back there, it may provide some assistance. You can use Siri, Alexa, Google, call a friend, use any resource you have available to you. What does his name Mean and let's remember whenever we look up the meaning of names, what do we have to check? Very basic principle. Whenever you look up the meaning of any biblical name, what do you have to check? Come on, this basic like Christianity 101 basic principle. Whenever you look up the meaning of a name in the Bible, what do you have to check? Does is there agreement on the meaning of the name? Right? Because maybe you can look at one book and it'll say, the meaning is this. And you look up in another book, oh no, the meaning is this. And you look in another book and the meaning is this. And whenever you find that no one can agree, then what can you do? Or what shouldn't you do? Don't be dogmatic and don't base some spiritual meaning going, well, the name means this, so this represents it, and come up with some crazy idea if nobody can agree. So when it comes to Simeon, is there any agreement on the meaning of his name? Okay, all right, so Unger says hearing, hearkening, okay, what would be the difference between hearing and hearkening? Is there a difference? Do what? Say it. Well, look up hearkening, everybody's got the internet, right? Heard, okay, heard, hearing, hearkening. What's the definition of hearkening? All right, hearing. Okay, right, okay, right. Okay, so we got, we got at least two sources saying hearing. Did you say, have something? Pay attention. 
If the, and, and there are multiple sources that will say hearing. I think one, to be, is interesting. I can't remember which source. Uh, they, they, they said his name means snubbed, see, snub-nosed or stub-nosed, some weird thing about the nose. And I was like, what in the world is that? I can't even remember what that was. Uh, I'm like, what is that? Uh, I can't remember which source that was from. But I think most agree, right, that it is about hearing. Now, that is somewhat interesting because what we're going to find out is that Simeon has supposedly have heard, has heard from God. And they, I want you to listen to this. He has heard from God and him being devout is seen that he has taken hold. The word devout is the idea of taking hold. He has taken hold of what he has heard and he's holding on to it tightly and trying to, well, you're going to see, waiting for it. Okay, does that make the idea? So Simeon is someone who is just or righteous, okay, because of faith. He has grabbed on to that faith. He's grabbed on to what he has heard from God, and he's holding on to it in a devout way, because his name seems to imply hearing. I think there's a little bit of a spiritual picture there that is somewhat interesting. Okay, so that kind of gets us to where we need to go next, because the next thing we need to look at is in verse 25. So behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was, his name seems to refer to something dealing with hearing, listening, hearkening, right? Seems to be not universal agreement, but seems to be a majority. Okay, has anybody got an issue with that? The same man was just and devout. I've explained those two to you. And then what's the next word? Waiting. He's waiting for something. Now we're going to find out that he's waiting for something that's been revealed to him, something that he has been told, something that he has heard. He's, his, his being devout is shown in the fact that he is he's holding on to what God has revealed to him. And that's very applicable to us, right? As Christians, we have God's revelation, right? We are declared just by faith. And we show that we are devout by holding on and clinging to God's revelation, which is right here. We don't listen for some still small voice. We hold on to God's word. So he's waiting. What is he waiting for? No, according to the verse. Consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. That is what we're going to focus on. Before anybody looks anything up. We need to establish some basic principles here, all right? This is very, 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 very important. All right. In, we've talked about this a million times. I guess there's a, there's a good thing about this in this church, and there's a, you may say it's a negative thing. The good thing in this church is that I'm always willing to work and struggle through doctrinal issues, which gives you the ability, hopefully, to see things from different perspectives, right? Now, sometimes you like that, sometimes you don't, but it gives you the ability to really think things through. Now, anyone who spends any time reading the Old Testament, right? We spend a lot of time with the Bible study exercise at the end of this year, working in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, and Isaiah 9. Lots of people, uh, lots of places of the world have been working hard on these outlines. They've been doing all the assignments. And we've learned a lot of things. But whenever you get into the Old Testament, you find lots of prophecies concerning whom? 
Israel. I, nobody, can, nobody can disregard that, right? They're all over the place. Okay, now, however, this is where things get really weird in church history. So here's the bizarre thing. Okay, you go to the Old Testament, you find prophecies. Many of those prophecies describe people. We'll give you the one, we'll give you the one that we talked about in Isaiah. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a child, his name will be called Jesus. Now, when we read that, uh, uh, that prophecy, do we believe the virgin was a real person? Do we interpret it as a literal virgin? Did she have an actual child? Do we believe it's a literal child? Was his name literally called Jesus? Okay, all literal, right? Okay, so all throughout Isaiah, there's all these prophecies, and people say, literal, 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 literal. When it talks about nations or, or, or countries being destroyed or brought into captivity, do we believe it's literal captivity? Yes, literal, 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 literal. And then all of a sudden, there'll be prophecies pertaining to Israel, and then everyone goes, stop, not literal. That's not literal Israel. That's spiritual Israel. That's not literal fulfillment. It's spiritual fulfillment. And whenever that happens, you have to stop and go, so wait a minute. When do you get to decide what's literal? And when do you get to decide what's not literal? What hermeneutical system is that? Is that the historical grammatical method? Absolutely not. Is that the allegorical method? Not even really the allegorical method because they pick and choose which part is allegorical. The only time you can do that is when the text does what? Screams at you. That's not literal. So if like, hey, Israel, you're going to go into Babylonian captivity. Was it literal Israel going into literal Babylonian captivity? So if in the same book it says, hey, Israel, this is going to happen to you, do you then say, no, 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 no. That's not Israel anymore. That's the church. That's not literal. That's figurative. Then why was the Babylonian captivity literal? When it says that the new covenant is going to be made with the house of uh, Judah and the house of Israel, that's that's not Israel. That's not Judah. That's the church. It's so arbitrary. In fact, not only is it arbitrary, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing because it makes it, I mean, like any reasonable person listening to that going, you're just making this stuff up. You're not even following a rule. Like a lost person would be like, you're just, you're insane. Now, this is very critical because this is the very issue we're getting ready to come into. All right? We're getting ready to come into this. And again, I've tried to tell everyone a million times, very few people will ever take me up on it, just get the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, book of Jeremiah, grab a Matthew Henry commentary, and find out. It's amazing that in those books, the church is everywhere. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? The church is all over the place. How did the church get there? Isn't that interesting? They had Matthew Henry put in there, right? Like, how did the church get there? But at the same time, like, but guess what? When Israel's punished, who is it? Literal Israel. When they get promised something, who gets it? Wow, isn't that interesting? Don't you like that idea? That's just arbitrary. It's arbitrary. It's just, it's just, it's, that's not hermeneutics. That's not hermeneutics. That's not even Bible study. 
That's like, don't even waste your time. Just give up because I don't know what that is. It just, it really, it, it becomes at some point problematic. All of that has everything to do with trying to figure this out. All right? It has everything to do with figuring this out. So what do we need? What should we do? We have Simeon. We've learned everything about him, right? He's a man who's listening, right? He's just, he's devout. He's holding on to what he has heard. And he's waiting for something. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. So what should be our steps in trying to figure what this is? What should we do to figure this out? What would be step one? Well, first, before we do all of that, we always start with something simple. Okay, well, we've read it. What is it? What do all the English translations say? Is there any big dispute over what the cons- do, do they say? Use a different term. So let's look at all the English translations, right? right so, uh, in fact, I'll just pull them up really quick. Give me one second. If my uh, hopefully my iPad will work. Let's see here. I should have already had them ready to go, but I didn't think about it. I know we've got a couple of translations here, but just give me a second. That's Luke 2. Because, we, because if, there's, if all the English translations agree, then we don't have to worry about some textual variant, some distant agreement. Because you know when you get into these controversial issues, if there's any difference in a translation, some people will go to the translation that best agrees with what? Their interpretation. So we, we want to make sure we eliminate all of that. Okay, so New International Version. What, how do you think it reads? Here we go. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the... Consolation of Israel. New Living Translation. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Wow, that really, that really states something, right? He's waiting for Israel to be rescued. Oh, that. Let's see what others do. ESV. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Berean Study Bible. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Berean Literal Bible. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the Consolation of Israel, King James, Consolation of Israel, New King James, Consolation of Israel, New American Standard, Consolation of Israel, New American Standard 1995, Consolation of Israel, New American Standard 1977, Consolation of Israel, Amplified Bible, Consolation of Israel, Christian Standard Bible, Israel's Consolation. Holman Christian Standard Bible, Israel's Consolation, American Standard Version, Consolation of Israel, Aramaic Bible in plain English, waiting for the consolation of Israel. I think you get the idea. Almost all of them say what? Consolation of Israel. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. Why? We don't have to get into some big argument like, okay, wait, this means this, this means that. Now, before we go a step further, let me just make something very clear. Whenever you get into these issues dealing with the consolation uh, with Israel, all right, Remember, this is what we have. This is just very important. Sometimes, especially in the Reformed camp, there is an arrogance that says, oh, if you believe in any literal prophecy to Israel, you're one of those stupid people who like left behind. Don't ever allow that arrogance to intimidate you because it's not about left behind. It's not about dispensationalism. What, is it all, what does it all come down to? Hermeneutics. 
And if they want to act arrogant, like let them act arrogant because they end up looking stupid and not applying the very hermeneutic which they are. Right? It's very interesting. Genesis 1.1. That's literal God, literal creation. He created the world in six days. Those are literal six days. Abram, literal. Jacob, literal. Joseph, liberal. Like everything. Tyre Sidon, liter- everything is literal. If I, 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 I was saying liberal, it was because I was getting too excited. Literal, okay. Everything is literal, okay. And then all of a sudden, just magically, you step into a chapter in Isaiah, and all of a sudden, guess what it becomes? Not literal. Okay. They, can act, they can put it in all the academic terms they want. It just looks foolish. And this is going to have everything to do with that. So, consolation of Israel, all right. Now, we've looked it up in the English Everyone can grab the, the, the Blue Letter Bible app. What is the word consolation? What's the Greek word for consolation? Do, does, does everybody need me to look it up for them? Okay, I'll just, I'll just do this. Hang on. All right, give me a second here. Let's do this. All right. I'll pull up blue. Luke 2, hang on, give me one second. I can get it to play. Luke 2, 25. All right, here we go. And there was a man, Jerusalem, Simeon, waiting for the consolation. It is this Greek word. Strong's G, 3874. Paraklesis. Paraklesis. Okay, paraclesis. I can't, I can't do the little rolling thing he does there. Paraclesis. All right, and it is used how many times? 29 times in the King James. It's translated consolation how many times? 14. Exhortation, eight times. Comfort, six times. Entreaty, one time. The definition... What's the, what's the basic idea of the definition that Strong's gives us? Solace, comfort, consolation, exhortation, or entreaty. Goes along with the idea, uh, kind of the idea of being implored, but really what's the main co- focus? Comfort, consolation, comfort. The outline of biblical usage, a calling near or summons as for help or especially for help. Okay, uh, uh, importation, supplication, or entreaty. Exhortation, admonition, encouragement. Consolation, comfort, solace, that which affords comfort or refreshment. Thus of the messianic salvation. So the rabbis call the Messiah the consoler, the comforter. So it's the, I guess we could carry the basic idea would be what? He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. He is waiting for this. He is devoutly holding on to something he has heard for someone to come to bring comfort. Now, what would be an obvious, just basic question that any good Bible student should ask right now? A couple of questions. Okay, well, I think that should be obvious, but that's a good question, okay? We'll say, what do they need comfort from? What do they need comfort from? 
right, I think that's good. I think the first question, though, and, and if we're going to go in logical order, is did he get this idea from something in the Old Testament? If he did, where? What was the context? And so, therefore, that would give him the understanding of what comfort he is looking for. Because we need to get into the mind of whom? Simeon. Like, you can sit there and take all of what you want and shove it down the throat of Simeon. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's horrible Bible study, right? You don't take your theology and then go run to Simeon going, that's what you thought. You don't speak for Simeon. Who speaks for Simeon? Simeon. And what's the only way to understand what Simeon thought? The Old Testament, right? So we're going to have to figure out, is this coming from the Old Testament? What's the second question we have to ask? So first, what could, was there any Old Testament idea that Simeon was getting this concept from? And what would be the second very important question? Okay. I think the text is going to make that clear. Okay. That's a good question, but there's one big question. So the first one is, did he get this idea anywhere in the Old Testament? We'll have to figure out the Old Testament connection. Second, this is absolutely huge. This is gigantic. This determines everything. This is the question of all the questions. This is a million-dollar question. $25 million question. Well, we know he's going to pick up a baby, right? And clearly, he perceives that this baby is the fulfillment of said promise, of prophecy or promise, right? Okay, so we, that baby was whom? Jesus, very good. You're in church. I can say that for any. Okay, good. So, so I think we can, we can all agree. I mean, hopefully everyone knows the story, right? I mean, Mary and Joseph are going to come walking in and they're going to see the baby. And it's like, hey, let me depart now. I've seen, I've seen your salvation, okay? If you don't know how the story ends, okay? That's how it ends, okay? So, now, what's, now, I've given you all of that. What's the question then? Thank you! Finally! Yes, that's the question. Did Jesus do what Simeon was waiting for? I mean, if, if he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, did Jesus accomplish that consolation and comfort? Now, what's your two options? Or you've got a couple of options. If you say yes, what do you need to answer? How? Well, I think we have to go to the Old Testament to figure that out. But, but we could, we'll look at that. All right. If we say yes, we've got to figure out how. What's your options with the how? All right. That he provided comfort in a spiritual way, and that wasn't necessarily for Israel. That was for whom? Anybody. So not necessarily for Israel. Okay, so in other words, he brought a spiritual comfort. He did not bring a literal comfort. Now, we have to ask ourselves, do you think Simeon was looking for a figurative one, a spiritual one, or a literal one? Oh, that's just, I mean, that's a good question. Did Jesus bring a literal fo- a comfort to them? He did? Let's see. Let me figure out how this works. They're under Roman control. They stay under Roman control, and then they're wiped off the face of the earth. Who was literally comforted? No, Israel. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. It wasn't the waiting for the comfort of Simeon. No, I'm talk- we're talking Israel. 
So then you have to go spiritual, right? So there was spiritual comfort. Now, if, it, if it's something in the Old Testament that he's pulling from, we have to go back to the Old Testament and see, was it promising a spiritual comfort or a literal comfort? That's what we're going to have to figure out. Well, we'll have, we'll have to determine that. It can be physical if that comfort was tied to something happening. That's why we're going to have to figure out the Old Testament. In other words, if I go to the Old Testament, like, you're going to be comforted because I'm going to wipe out all your enemies and I'm going to set up a kingdom and all the world's going to flow into Jerusalem, that's a literal thing. Or you have to say that it's a spiritual thing and that's the church and it's not Jerusalem, it's the church, it's not, it's, not, it's not Israel, it's the church. And you have to do that, what Matthew Henry will do. So if the comfort is attached to literal actions, then you have to either spiritualize the actions or look for the literal fulfillment. Does that make sense? Do do what now? Well, Simeon knew who he was, right? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that Simeon got it, but he's not waiting for, the, for his comfort. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. So what did he do for Israel? Unless you say Israel's not Israel. Do you see where, the, where this all divides quickly? Okay, well, that's... That, yeah, I'll just show you how important this... I'll just show you because we, when you're reading the historical narrative, it just seems abrupt. All of a sudden, here's Simeon. Yeah, they have this encounter, and then Simeon it just kind of he's, he's gone away from. But it's it was far more important from a historical context. What Simeon is saying here was common in the Jewish culture. All right, this was a common Jewish formula and a prayer for the advent of the Messiah, and it was da- used on a daily basis. It was a common thing for the Jews to say, we are waiting for the consolation of Israel. We're waiting for the consolation of Israel. We're waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let the consolation of Israel come. Let the consolation of Israel come. This is a a common thing. All right? Um, Okay, and but, well, before we go, I've got other things here to, to, to talk about, but I won't, I won't go into that right now. So, what do we need to figure out then? What's the main thing we need to figure out? Is this come, does this come from the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form? Does it have any connection to the Old Testament? That's the key. Because if we can figure out what the Old Testament says, then we'll understand what Simeon was thinking. And why do we know Simeon would have been thinking what everybody else was thinking? Because this was a common phrase used by the Jews. This was like, this was not like some obscure thing. You're like, oh wow, this is some weird thing. No, all the Jews were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were all looking for it. They were all waiting for it. They were all praying for it. So let me do the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Bible study curriculum really quick. And I'm going to see what they do, all right? Because everyone approaches this from a very different way, right? So I've got some, I've got some commentaries that we'll go to in a minute. Okay, wait, I don't need to go there. I'll just do it this way. Right, give me one second.
All right. The curriculum is loading. Give me one second. Here we go. Do what? Okay. Well, well we're going to see what the curriculum does, and then we'll go there. That's going to be one of them. There's going to be a couple of them. All right. All right. Here we go. I'm going to go to the uh, adult leader guide and see what they have to say here in regards to this. All right. Yeah. Someone, so, some of you are already looking up uh, passages in Isaiah, which is good. Here we go. Are you ready? Another key description of Simeon is that he was someone who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Jews knew the prophecies like Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 and Isaiah 53, 1 through 6 that foretold the coming of God's Messiah. Most of the Jewish people interpreted these passages to mean a warrior king who would defeat Israel's enemies and then rule the earth from Jerusalem. However, some who would read these passages focus on the theme of God's salvation instead of looking for, an, for a leader who would lead Israel to victory and battle and to material prosperity. The faithful Jews were patiently waiting for the one who would open up the way to God's salvation by the remission of their sins. So they acknowledge that there were some differences of opinions even within the Jewish community, which it should not surprise us that we have the same problems in the Christian world. So what do we do? Well, the, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is not going to be of major help. We've already worked on all of that, right? That has all kinds of implications of what? The countries that were involved in those. Remember, we talked about all of those uh, uh, countries. We got Syria. We have Assyria. We have Judah. We have, uh, those, and those were all white. Just make sure we know. Literal countries with what? Literal war, literal destruction. So let's just make sure. There's no question about that. All right? So let, they go through some other passages. Let's just look at some of them. They mentioned Isaiah 53. Let's just, for argument's sake, let's just look at the ones that they bring up and we'll see what is described here. All right? Let's go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Let's just see the ones that they bring up. All right? Okay, they, go, they say Isaiah 53, verses uh, 1 through 7. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and a chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now, they go to that, but there's like, what, is there a direct correlation to Luke 2.25 there? You think you would find possibly a better, a better one, right? You think you would look for something better, other than if you have a theological agenda. 
If you have a theological agenda, why would you go to this one? Why would you go to this one if you have a theological agenda? To say, oh, the comfort here is just salvation. It's just salvation. It's just salvation. Just salvation. Just salvation. And so the comfort is only like, hey, guys, uh, here's my comfort. I'm going to make salvation possible, so if you will believe, you can be saved. That's his comfort. So let me ask a question. Was there an offer of salvation to Israel before Jesus? Or was there no hope for salvation to Israel until after Jesus? Because if he's waiting for the consolation, then you're assuming that there was no comfort before that. Was there no comfort to be found in God and a covenant relationship with God before this? That's where things begin to fall apart, right? Yes? I mean, Abram believed God and he was accounted unto him as righteous. David, right? He, He was comforted in the fact that God did not impute his sins against him. All of that occurred before Jesus. From a human perspective. So that, that comfort, you think, has to have some other meaning, right? Because if it's just a spiritual comfort, wasn't that spirit? Are you going to say, are you going to go so strong, dispensational, that you're going to say, oh, there, there was no comfort to them spiritually until Jesus came? That's a hard thing to follow. Agreed? So I, I don't know why you would go to Isaiah there in that passage. All right, what's another one? that we, what's, what's the other one they mentioned? Did they mention another one? I can't remember. They mentioned nine, which we've already looked at, and I think that was the only one they mentioned, right? Is that the only one? Oh, no, they mentioned the following. Are you ready? Isaiah 45. Oh, we're going to run out of time. Isaiah 45. I'm in Isaiah 43, which makes absolutely no sense. Okay, all right. I'm looking at that going, what in the world? That's talking about chariots. What is going on? Okay. All right, Isaiah 45, 17. You ready? But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, uh, confounded world without end. What does that seem to be speaking of? Oh, a salvation of Israel. Okay, now let's stop right here. Let's just go with this concept. Was Israel saved when Jesus came? Did they, did they experience a national salvation? Did they experience a physical salvation? Did they experience any kind of salvation? Various people. Was Israel saved? Is there any promise of Israel being saved anywhere else in the Bible? Where? where but, yeah, but where? Where in the Bible? No, in the New Testament. In the New Testament. New Testament. New Testament. New Testament. New Testament. I mean, all over the Old Testament, there's constant promises of Israel being saved. Over and 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 over again. So, but in the New Testament. Because if it's not in the New Testament, then we have to look for what? Something historical. Right? See, this is basic hermeneutics, right? So, where in the New Testament does it talk about Israel being saved? Romans. Okay, okay. Romans, okay. We, we've talked about this, I don't know, 50 million times, right? And that's not even hyperbole, okay. Romans, where? 
Oh, Romans 11. Okay, let me, let's go here. I don't think it's actually there. Okay, Romans 11. Is it there? For I would, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own eyes, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from... Je- oh, oh, what's that a reference to? What's verse 26 a reference to? Oh, it's from Isaiah. No way. It couldn't be from Isaiah. No, absolutely not. Matthew Henry would tell me that's not Israel that's going to be saved. That's the church. And Matthew Henry knows all things. Okay, now remember we worked through this, right? The first thing is the verse prior to makes a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles, clearly demonstrating a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. It's not a, a distinction. So, so the church was blinded until the Gentiles came in, and then the church will be saved. What kind of utter mess is that? So that means there's a promise that Israel will be saved, which goes with this. So now ask the question, if the comfort, the salvation of Israel, if it's the comfort of the salvation of Israel, was Israel saved in Jesus' first coming? Were they saved nationally? No. In fact, were they saved in a geopolitical way? No, they're going to be what? They were in captivity, in a sense, and what ultimately happened to them? They were destroyed in 70 AD, right? Everybody remember 70 AD? All right, so what, what, So go back to that passage that we just looked at in Isaiah. Uh, the first one, that, uh, the, uh, 45, 4517, right? 4517. 4517, now we can look at uh, context here, all right? But 45.17. But Israel shall be saved. Now, some will argue that this was uh, Israel being saved from what? <clears throat> go, <clears throat> go back to the beginning of 45. <clears throat> if I can, don't lose my voice tonight. <clears throat> the decree from Cyrus to do what? <clears throat> what did Cyrus do? Release people from captivity and go back to where? Back to Jerusalem, right? Okay. Some people will say, oh, see, that's the salvation it's referring to. That's the salvation it's referring to. But go back to Isaiah 45. What does it say about this salvation that seems interesting? Oh, but remember, Sarah, everlasting doesn't mean everlasting. (laughs) Everlasting, right? Okay. So was there a return from uh, Babylonian captivity everlasting? No, it wasn't. Because by the time you get from the, uh, come back from the Babylonian captivity to the opening of the New Testament, where do we find them again? Back under control of another country. All right, then what happens uh, between, let's, you, you can just go from <clears throat> the time of Jesus, his earthly ministry, you're 30-something A.D., just, in the, just by the time you get to 70 A.D., they are what? Destroyed. So... Does that, does that fit? That doesn't seem to fit. So what salvation is this referring to? Well, then if you go to Romans, now it talks about another salvation for Israel, right? Yeah. 
Okay, so then that would put it where? Future. Unless you say that it's what? Spiritual, and if it's spiritual, then why would Paul speak of it future? Because it would have already happened when Christ came. Unless you're going to say, well, that's referring to the church, but wouldn't the ch- aren't we already saved? Like, now you get into all kinds of, of major issues, right? So, what comfort was he referring to? Let's go to another passage. That's Isaiah 45, 17, right? Let's go to another one. All right, we got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry. Go to um, Isaiah 51, 6. Isaiah 51, 6. This is another one they mentioned. Everybody ready? Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke. The earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever. And my righteousness shall not be abolished. I don't know. Is that helpful? They're just choosing random verses now, right? I mean, like, oh, that speaks of salvation. Okay, that's what it has to refer to. This is pretty random stuff. Let's let's go to another one, right? There's there's another one that they offer. They offer another one, 6110. Sixty-one ten. Well, we're going to run out of time. Right, everybody there? Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with a garment of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. What is, what is the curriculum simply doing? They're finding any verses that speak of salvation because they're interpreting the comfort there as a spiritual salvation. They're not even looking for verses that talk about comfort. They're just looking for ones that say, which, who came up with that hermeneutical system? So, well, so let's do this. Does the word consolation show up in Isaiah? Let's just look up the word consolation. You can use whatever tools you have. I mean, this is a, just, these are just basic questions we should offer or ask. Doesn't show up. All right, so that doesn't help. But consolation basically means what? Comfort. So does the word comfort show up in the book of Isaiah? Yes. How many times? Okay. What's a few? Fourteen? Fourteen. Okay. So let's take a quick journey through the book of Isaiah and look for all the promises of comfort and see if these have anything to do with what Simeon or the Jews were looking for. All right. What's the first one? 12.1. Isaiah 12.1. Let's do this. All right. Isaiah 12.1. Isaiah 12, 1, and in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thy anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Now, we would have to look at some context of who's being referred to here, right? Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. But let's go, uh, uh, let's go through a couple of things here, all right? Let's just say... Let's just say that somehow 
This is what Simeon was looking for. Hey, I've found comfort because your anger is going to be turned away. Now he's looking for the comfort of Israel, right? Now wait, was God's anger done with Israel? No. 70 AD, they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Even when Paul speaks of them, what does he say has happened to them in Romans 11? What does he say? Go, go to Romans 11. What did he say happened to him? And the very the verse leading up to the fact that all Israel is going to be saved. He hardened their hearts. All right, that, that obviously seems he's still upset, yes? All right, so even if you make this applicable, it wasn't then fulfilled when? At the first coming of Christ. All right. You see, you, see how, you see how you work these questions through? All right, what's the next passage where it mentions comfort? 22.4. 22.4. You said 22.4? Okay, there it is. Okay, I was like, wait a minute. Are you sure it's there? Okay, all right. Um, we'll go to verse 1. The burden of the Valley of Vision. Famous book of, by the Puritans called the Valley of Vision. Very, very famous book. It takes uh, Puritan prayers and puts it all in one uh, volume. That's where they got it from. Uh, the burden of the valley of the vision. What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? That thou art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in thee are bound together, which have fled from far. Therefore said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. I think we can clearly say that doesn't seem to have any context to Simeon. Right? This is again talking about the destruction, judgment coming, Someone weeping, not wanting to be comforted. Is that Isaiah the prophet? We can get, we can get into this. That doesn't seem to have any connection. Everybody agree? All right, next. Isaiah 40. This is the go-to one I think most people look to. All right? And here's the reason why. You'll see why, because if you look at the context here. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith, the, the, saith your God. Speak ye comfortable to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, what could that be referring to? Now, what's your options? What's your options here? Let's go through it. What's your options? Oh, this is them coming out of Babylonian captivity. Well, that's only for the Judah. That's not for all of Israel. That's number one, right? And if it says all of your warfare is accomplished, was all of her warfare accomplished after they came out of Babylonian captivity? No. Was it even accomplished when Jesus came? No. Is it accomplished today? No. Okay, so none of that works, right? So what's your second option? Oh, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. So they're going to be saved, and there's no going to be any spiritual warfare. Well, Israel's not all saved. There's all kinds of false religions in Israel, so that doesn't work. And not only that, if that worked, then why is Paul talking about all Israel will be saved in Romans 11? All right, so none of that works. So what in the world is this possibly referring to? It is interesting, though, that right after that, what do we have next? Next. 
The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. You have a promise of whom? John the Baptist, who is seeming to be going to be the one preparing for this one who will bring comfort. So Simeon, so you can see why, how would have Israel then understood the comfort? They would have understood the comfort to be a removal of what? Go back to Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 2. All warfare is over. All their enemies are gone. That's what they were. And is that not what the Jews were looking for? Why were the Jews looking? See, what drives me crazy is when Christians act like, well, those Jews were all stupid. Why couldn't they read Isaiah and understand it? Oh, yeah, let's go. I'll bring a test on Isaiah and show me how much you understand. Okay, like Stacy always says, nobody understands the book. But why? Because they read the book and understood that these were promises that were going to be fulfilled what? And if you say they were stupid for looking for a literal fulfillment, then I guess they would have been stupid for looking for a literal fulfillment of a baby being born of a virgin. So which is it? Were they smart or were they stupid? You, you can't have it both ways, right? Oh, see, they took that too literal. They were dumb. Oh, but they didn't understand that virgin thing. Well, they were stupid. What well, could you make up your mind? They were looking for a comfort. Okay, what's the ne- next one? We've got to go quickly. We've got to move quickly. What is it? 51.3, which I think we've already read. But, oh, 49.13. 49.13, okay. We don't want to skip any of these. 49.13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Okay, now that seems to be some kind of a promise, yes? Now again, what's your options? When do the, when does, when do the people sing this? And it seems to be the whole earth. Yes? Did Israel do that in his first coming? Do you say it was spiritual? If you say it's spiritual, then again, in what way? Because all Israel wasn't spiritually saved in that way. So you see, there's an, there's an issue here. Right? What's the next one? 51.3, for the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Does anybody know when that occurred? Okay, yeah, 70, yeah, 70 AD. Not fulfilled yet. Not fulfilled. We agree? So guess what? Guess what? I can go Matthew Henry on you. It's the church. Those are all spiritual blessings. Isn't that great? See, does that even make any sense? Right? Next. 51.12. I even, I even, I am he that comforteth you, who art thou, thou, thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass. Right? A promise of comfort, but again, we had fear. Next. The two, the two things are come unto thee, who shall be sorry for thee, desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword, by whom shall I comfort thee? Again, we'd have to look at, you've got promises of judgment and mixed in at all of this, you'd have to figure out what's going on. Next, 52.9, got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry. 
Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Did he redeem Jerusalem when he came the first time? No. Guess when they thought he was going to come in and redeem Jerusalem? When he came riding in the donkey, they were blessed is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were waiting for him to come in and set up his kingdom, and he didn't do anything. He did what? He chased him out of the temple. And then they said, we'll kill him. He's not, he's not the Messiah, because the Messiah is supposed to do this. Right. Any, uh, is there another one? Okay, where is it? 5411. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and thy foundations with sapphires. All right, we, we've got a lot trying to figure out there. Next. 57.6. Amongst the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They that are lot, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Next. Verse 18, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. Next. 61.2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Next. 66.13. In many of these, there's just no like... You have to just try to work to try to bring some kind of concept in. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and you should be comforted in Jerusalem. There's all kinds of promises of comfort coming to Jerusalem, coming to Israel. The question is, did it happen the first coming? No. So, does does any of your Bibles have a cross-reference in Luke 2.25 about the constellation of Israel that's different than the ones that we've read? No. No. They all point to the, basically these general promises of comfort found in the Old Testament. All right, so let's do it this way. Everybody ready? We'll wrap it up and we'll be done. Here we go. Thinking caps on. All right, everybody thinking caps on? All right, here we go. Was there a promise of comfort given to Israel? Yes. In many cases, those promises were attached to what kind of things happening? The, the, the end of war, the end of of, of pestilence, play, like everything was going to be wonderful and great. And in some cases, it's connected to what word, Sarah? Everlasting, okay? Now, that, that's, that's shown over and over and over and over and over again. So let's go through this. Here's Simeon. He sees Jesus, and he, he has been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and he believes that somehow that consolation of Israel is, has been revealed to him is connected to this child, all right? That's what he knows, Hey man, what else he knows we don't, we just can go with what we have in the text. All right, so let's go through this. Jesus shows up. He grows up. Is Israel comforted in a sense to, does warfare end, bondage, captivity end, and suffering end? Does it end in any physical way? No. In fact, it gets worse, yes? 70 AD. In fact, they're not even a nation again until 1948, right? Okay, even now, what's the nation like? Surrounded by enemies, right? Worried right now that Iran's going to get a nuclear weapon and wipe them off the face of the planet. All right, so, and then they got the Palestinians. They got all kinds of issues, yes? Well, I'm not saying that everything Israel does is right. I don't want anyone to misinterpret this. They do lots of things that I would completely disagree with. But the point is, 
The point is, they're not at peace. Okay? Yeah. And, and what's on the, what's on the, basically the Temple Mound? An Islamic mosque. Okay, like, I mean, nothing is anywhere close to the way it would, you can't find any, anything. So even, even reformed people are smart enough to go, okay, none of that was fulfilled literally. So then you have to go, okay, the comfort comes to the church, not to Israel. Isn't that amazing? All of those prophecies in the Old Testament about comfort, and none of them are actually for national Israel. They're for us. And even then, they're very messed up because they seem to say, no warfare, no problems. And when you become a Christian, you're still in warfare and there's still problems. So even that, the, the, the prophecies are just pathetic, right? That they, they don't even live up to the picture. There's warfare. Yeah. So it's like, so if, it, so if it's not fulfilled then in any literal way, then you have to either say it's fulfilled in the church, which then that doesn't even seem to fit the picture, or what do you have to believe? It's not fulfilled yet. So then think about it from this perspective. What did Simeon then see? He saw the one who would fulfill it. He didn't see the actual fulfillment of it, and yet he was contented with it. That's a very important principle, and I stated it that way for I wanted you to write it down, all right? So what did Simeon see? He saw the one who would fulfill it. He did not see the fulfillment of it, yet he was content with it. Because it was more about not the fulfillment of the promise, but it was about the one who gave the promise. Where do we find our comfort? Where do we find our contentment? In Christ, not necessarily all the promises that we may or may not get or we may not even see fulfilled. Remember, this is a common thing in the Old Testament, right? In, in the book of Hebrews, it mentions all kinds of people, right? And it talks about that they never saw the fulfillment of many of the promises, yes? Did Abraham ever see the fulfillment of some of those promises? No. Was he content? Because he saw the one, in a sense, who gave the promises. Simeon teaches us that we find our fulfillment in Christ, not necessarily in all of the... We we may not. Look, there's lots of promises of Christ returning. You may never see it. But you have to be comforted in whom? The one who will bring it, maybe not even whether you ever see it or not. That's the beautiful thing about Simeon. He was waiting, and in some sense, I wonder, I know the Bible doesn't say, but I want, don't you wish, I don't know, now who knows how quickly Simeon died after this, right? Because he says, you know, your servant can depart in peace now, right? Which is just interesting because that, the the prayer of Simeon, that I've seen your salvation, let your servant depart in peace now, that is said every night and nighttime prayer in the liturgy of the hours. You literally read those words. Because the idea that you've lived your life today, and guess what you've seen? You've seen the salvation of God in the sense of your salvation spiritually. So you should be ready to die every day because you've already seen salvation, so you should be content. It's a beautiful prayer that's said every night in the liturgy of the hours. Okay, But um, I'll, I'll try to talk about that this week. So, But here's the thing. Just imagine, here's Simeon. I don't know how long he lived. 
What if he lived another three years? Just now, this is speculation. What if he was in Jerusalem when the crowd started saying, crucify him? Or, or, oh, God, well, yeah, that's with a baby. 33 years. I'm sorry. I was thinking at the beginning of his earthly ministry. You're right. Thank you. 33 years. What if he was alive for another 33 years? Thank you for correcting that. See, it's math. You know, numbers. You know what happens when I do numbers. Okay. So 33 years, he's in Jerusalem, and then there's that little baby that he held in his arm saying, there's, there's the fulfillment. There's the consolation of Israel. And now they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then he watches him being led, he led, watch Christ being led to the cross and then hanging on the cross. I wonder what he would have thought. Now, we don't know. He could have already been long gone. I mean, I'm not, I'm just saying, I mean, I, I'm not making any claim that he was there, but if he was there, now, if he was there, what, what's the lesson in that? What's the lesson in it if he was standing there? I've already given you the formula. He, no, 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 okay. He saw the one who would bring the fulfillment. He never saw the fulfillment, yet he was content with it. Would he still have been content watching him bleed to death? Now we say, well, we may say he should have been, but then the question is, are we? Because there's lots of promises, there's lots of things that we may want. We've got to, I'm trying to get you to see that your contentment has to be found in Christ, not in what he necessarily will or will not do for you, or whether you see a fulfillment of a promise. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You don't, trust me, they thought that was going to be a physical deliverance right then and there. That's what they were waiting for. And the reason they thought that is because it's all over the Old Testament. Okay? It's not because like, well, they were just stupid. If they had a Matthew Henry commentary, they would have understood everything. I mean, give me a break, okay? Maybe they actually understood, right? When they saw prophecies, they expected what? A literal fulfillment, okay? That's the way it works, right? If they didn't expect a literal fulfillment, then none of the prophecies would have made any sense. Hey, Tyre and Sidon's going to be destroyed. Oh, probably spiritually. We're going to go into Babylonian captivity. Probably spiritually. We're going to come out of Babylonian captivity. Probably spiritually. Do you know how that destroys the entire Bible if you start interpreting it that way? They were looking for something literal. Now, the key is, when the literal thing doesn't show up, do you lose your joy and your comfort and your contentment? It's got to be found in God, not in necessarily how everything plays out. Simeon, we can say this dogmatically, he never saw the earthly fulfillment of it. And anyone else who were like, that's it, he's the consolation of Israel, would have been really confused when they saw Jerusalem surrounded in 69 leading up to 70 AD. Remember how bad things got if, if we believe Josephus' record. They were starving to death, possibly eating their, each other, retur- turning into cannibalism. They got slaughtered. You'd be like, well, where's the comfort in this? Where should they found the comfort? 
in the one and whom would bring the comfort, even if they did not see the fulfillment of it. Our comfort must be found in him, not in everything else. We have a very transactional view of God. I believe you give me things. You do for me. You promise this, you promise. I want that promise now. You don't give me that, then I become disillusioned, discouraged, bitter, and then have to deconstruct and give up my faith. That's because you've been taught a really transactional view of God. You do your part and God will do his part. That's not the way it works. You put your faith in him and find your comfort and joy in him, whether you see the fulfillment of certain things or not. Simeon did not see the fulfillment of that unless you spiritualize it. And if you spiritualize it, then it really means nothing. Because it's not like Israel was, were they all pouring in to believe in Jesus? No. In fact, before, I mean, look at, the Christianity today is made up of what? Is it predominantly Jewish? Exactly. Israel's still in spiritual darkness. Oh, wait, that's in Romans 11. Now, if the spiritual darkness is found in Romans 11, I can see the spiritual darkness. That would mean the salvation that he speaks of hasn't happened yet. There you go. That's the consolation of Israel has to be the comfort of delivering Israel from all of their enemies, which has not occurred yet. There you go. And it hasn't even happened in a spiritual sense because Israel is still not saved spiritually speaking. All right, we'll have to stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. A very difficult concept that has surrounded in theological controversy. There is so much debate on all of this. I pray that we will keep this simple and just ask ourselves if the other prophecies in Isaiah were literal, then this has to be literal and then whatever that, wherever that leads us, Lord, let us that be the position we at least cling to unless something in the text would argue different. Forgive us for how we've mishandled the text maybe in the past. Help us handle it better in the present and even more so in the future. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,